We would like to acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon people of the Kulin Nation and pay our respects to their elders past and present. The First Peoples of this continent have ongoing justice systems which predate colonisation and have strong connections to land, language and people. Sovereignty was never ceded, always was, always will be. Aboriginal land. In the heat of the At the top of this week's episode, we just want to give everyone a content warning. Throughout this episode, we discuss sexual assault and sexual harassment, particularly in the interview we have later on with Dr. Bianca Philippon. When we discuss definitions of and experiences with sexual assault and subsequent court cases related to it. Timestamps for the interview are available in the show notes. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Loud, Angry and Not Sorry, where we talk about news, politics and current events from a feminist perspective. How's it going, Leah? Hi, Carly. I am great. I'm actually quite full of sugar right now. Oh, that's ideal. Yeah. Pete Evans would be so disappointed in me right now. (laughs) Look, if I'm living my life in a way that Pete Evans isn't disappointed by, then I'm living my life wrong. (laughs) (laughs) What a motto. (laughs) (laughs) I think we can just wrap it up there. (laughs) That's the most important news for this week. Whatever. It's the opposite of what would Jesus do. It's what would Pete Evans do. (laughs) Do the opposite. Yeah. I'm into it. I'm into it. Uh, Yeah. So how has your week been, Carly? Uh, It's been highly pollinated, but getting through it. Yeah. Yeah. I literally cannot remember what I've done this last week. I, when you said that, I was like, I have no idea, except that I lost two whole days to hay fever. And we're having another day, a week of highs and extremes. But as long as we also have zeros at the same time, that's fine. Do you know what else is highs and extremes right now, Carly? Oh, what's that? Uh, our rating on Apple Podcasts. <gasps> Did Because, like, well, first of all, I didn't realize we were on Apple Podcasts. Like I had submitted the podcast to Apple Podcasts, but I am so inept that I was just not sure if it worked. But apparently we actually got up to position 102, which is pretty awesome. Very exciting. Yeah. Like loud, cheery noises. Um, (laughs) But like as a a direct result of us being like famous now, um... (laughs) Uh, we've actually been approached for, for sponsorship, which is like, wow. How exciting. Like, I, I know. I mean, like, I think one of the only things that I said about this, po- like, we don't want to be sponsored, like, you know, but I think that's just something that you say to yourself when you're, when you don't think it's going to succeed. Mm. But now that we're clearly famous being at 102 once for like maybe about a minute, I don't even know. <laughs> like, I think we should just, you know, like roll with it. Yeah, we've, so, we've got um, bills to pay like everyone else. Yeah, exactly. You know, no ethical consumption, etc., cetera, et cetera. Uh, So just bear with us. They just want to play like a 30-second clip. We'll just let it roll. So just, all right, we'll just go. Are you tired of having to use people's correct pronouns? Have you had enough of being told not to use ableist slurs? Is no one laughing at your rape jokes? Well, have I got a solution for you? It's called Shut Up and Fuck Off. If you order right now, it's completely free, totally accessible, and you are 100% biodegradable. Just call 1-800-EAT-A-DICK. Try it today. See, look, it wasn't that long. It's totally fine. That'll happen like every week. And depending on how much money they give us, we might have to do it like maybe twice. Like, but yeah. Anyway, like, thanks everyone for supporting us. And um, yeah, that's, that's, I think it's really cool. Yeah. Like my parents haven't even listened to it, which I kind of told them not to considering how many times I talk about masturbation. <laughs> but like, <laughs> um. <laughs> Like, I, you know, like this means that pe- it's people that are not related to us. So thank you so much. It means a lot. And do yeah. all the, like, we don't actually have any, we don't have like an official Twitter or anything. Like we've got the Loud, Angry and Not Sorry page on Facebook. So you can like find stuff on there. We share articles and uh, memes and random crap, lots of events on there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, head there and, and so head to the to the Loud Angry and Not Sorry Facebook page for updates in between 
podcasts. I think I don't know. Is that how you, I don't know how to do shout outs because I'm not like I've never been famous before. <laughs> uh, that's enough of us cry wanking over ourselves. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know if you recall, Carly, but Four Corners did like what they like to call an expose mm. on uh, on the sexual misconduct occurring within the Canberra bubble to everyone else is called yeah patriarchy but to them it was like a revelation Mm. yeah yeah it was uh i mean pretty expected (laughs) i wasn't that shocked there was lots of interesting framing in it of them saying that any other industry in this wouldn't be tolerated which i felt like was a very privileged perspective because maybe in some more privileged industries it wouldn't be tolerated but um i i'm sorry no it's prevalent across all industries. Oh, 100%. Got, oh, my God. How can they even pretend? Yeah. And that it annoyed the crap out of me because I was just like, I don't, oh, I don't, yeah. Anyway, it's just ridiculous to argue that this is an issue isolated to the Canberra bubble, as they kept calling it. Uh, and, yeah, made made my blood boil a bit that they wanted to act like the rest of Australian workplaces and Australian society doesn't have this issue because it was very silencing as someone who has gone through situations of sexual harassment and as they like to call it sexual misconduct in (laughs) workplaces in the last five to 10 years, not 40 years ago, as I think it was Turnbull said. Oh yes. Yes. The corporate, the corporate scene 40 years ago. And someone, did someone else make a mention of like mad men or something? Oh. Like about the attitudes to, towards women being like a sort of a Mad Men-esque thing. Yeah, it was a very odd framing. I mean, I'm a sh- I'm just going to talk about this just assuming that people have watched it. So if you haven't watched it, just like stop the episode, nip onto iView and, and be prepared to be like super disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for me, the, the thing that really jumped out at me was – you had all of these women from across party lines talking about the power imbalance. And then you had Malcolm Turnbull, the shit eating cunt, um, talking about uh, uh, optics mm. and, uh, oh, what if, you know, secrets get leaked or something like that, which mm-hmm. like, don't get me wrong, the secret and the espionage aspect is a valid concern. But he had zero interest in the well-being of the young woman. Mm. Or the young women, I should say. Like, even Christina Keneally, who, like, fucking loves putting people in cages and on islands and, like, detaining people. She, like, is all about, like, reducing people's human rights. Even she was like, if I'm being hit on in open at an event, then what's happening in Mm. Parliament House? It's, like, a totally valid question. Yeah. But it seemed to be a perspective that only the women who were being interviewed were considering. Yeah, and I think in particular Turnbull, when he was talking about Porter and he um, had to pull him aside after he was caught at the public bar and pull him aside and like give him a talking to about his behaviour and then Turnbull on this show is acting really righteous about doing it, but then a week later made him the attorney general literally a week later and that complete like dissonance between you've literally just had to reprimand someone and that's when Turnbull kept talking about like security despite what he's now claiming are moral objections to what Porter did he didn't have any moral objections to them making him the most powerful lawyer in Australia uh oh what about Malcolm's whole fucking uh the liberal party doesn't have a problem with women Women have a problem with the Liberal Party. Oh, yeah. It, oh, mm-mm. <laughs> mm-mm. Delicious. Yeah. Um, what is your uh, – I've just totally forgotten what you are. Uh, what is your linguist take on that? So there was a whole speech when he said that that was very carefully selecting words where it's like – it's like he doesn't actually want to – undermine the Liberal Party too much. It's like he's saying things in a way that indicates that there's a problem and he's a part of fixing this problem because he's such a stellar guy. 
Yeah, that comment that women have a problem with the Liberal Party, I was just floored by that because you're here to talk about how horrible ministers, politicians, very powerful men in this country, how immoral and unethically they've behaved in terms of, um, yeah, like it's the power dynamic that's a problem. I don't, I don't care who sleeps with who or what kind of marriage you have or any of that, but when it's about a power imbalance coming into it and you're taking advantage of someone because you're in a position of power, that's when it's horrific. And so he's talking about all these things and instead of saying, yeah, the Liberal Party, there's issues in terms of gender equality and there's issues in terms of uh, the treatment of women, women have a problem with the Liberal Party. Like, yeah, Mm. we do, because you're a bunch of cunts. Like, that's our problem with the Liberal Party. Stop fucking filling up our dresses, you shitty bitches. And then we got another taste of from last week when I talked about that picture in the budget of Albanese with all of his (laughs) women behind him. We had (laughs) behind-the-scenes shots of that photo shoot in the Four Corners episode as well, and I was just like, oh, my God, uh, just never ending. <laughs> oh no, but they were but they were comparing the two as if to say the Liberal Party has got like no women mm. and look at all the women that the Labour Party have collected over the years. And put on like, display in their cabinet. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, it was I s- honestly in the la- how is Penny Wong? Oh is she is she state or fe- she's federal, isn't she, Penny Wong? Yeah. Yeah, she's How is she not how is she not the leader? What? I, I don't, it does, you've got Penny Wong and you've got fucking Albanese. I forgot. How is that? I honestly forgot Albanese was the leader until like a few weeks ago. Oh, my God. I couldn't remember his first name. <laughs> yeah, you thought Someone I made it me, up. You know, it was me. Anthony Albanese. <laughs> oh, sorry. I was like, oh, yeah, Anthony Albanese. And you were like, that's not his name. <laughs> Old Tony. Yeah. <laughs> Tony Albanese. And that's right. I think there was, maybe it was in an article I read about the Four Corners thing. They were trying to say that the reason that the Liberal Party lost the support of women was Tony Abbott. And I feel like it's one of those situations where, like, he he was the face of the problem. But, like, the problem, we had an issue with the entire party and it, then you made him the minister for women and then he became the prime minister and it just became blatantly obvious how horrible he was to women. But like, that's not why we have a problem with the Liberal Party. No. And I think we need to stop looking at individual people yeah. as a, that was the person, that was the person. These people are endemic. Yeah. They are, that these people are symptoms of a much bigger problem. Yeah. Like, so this cunt is our prime minister. Yeah. He keeps using language that essentially justifies the behaviour of these men in power. I know I'm talking about this in a very binary way, so I'm not meaning to be exclusionary. I'm sorry to my beautiful trans friends and to my non-binary friends. But this is kind of the language that I guess they use. They, they do use very binary language, which is not okay. The government is a very heteronormative place and it's not a place where discussions like this are had with nuance and... Again, it was another discussion where um, people who are LGBTQIA plus weren't even discussed. It was mainly about predatory cishet men. That's what it was about. Yeah. Um, Which, you know, occurs across the board. But, like, Mm. Turnbull framed it in this way that was like, it's a home away from home. People are stressed. They're up late. They're isolated. It's not a healthy environment talking about bubbles inside bubbles and that, like, you know, people lose themselves and lose sight of, like, social standards and, you know, attitude and their attitudes towards women are just, you know, just depleted because, you know, they couldn't help themselves because they're in this bubble and under all this stress. Mm. So, you know, I'm assuming that, like, the women who work in parliament also under those same conditions and manage to not abuse anyone well I don't know Rochelle Miller I yeah I wrote down that at one point she said that the environment is highly sexualized as a consequence of stress and I was just like what 
What? Look, mate, when I get oh. stressed, I mean, okay, I might have a wank when I'm a bit stressed sometimes, <laughs> but mostly I'm like, I'm going to have a shower. Yeah. Or I might have a cry know? in the shower. <laughs> have a wine and a cry in a shower. I I somehow managed to get around my stress by not assaulting and abusing other people. Yes. And it's really funny that like our social expectations of men and men's capacity to control their behavior is so low and it's just accepted. This boys will be boys mentality. It's just, it's rife in our community and Mm. in our discourse we don't say it but it's at the back of our minds like that's essentially what this whole program is saying you know like oh Turnbull is pretty much saying you know like look come on what do you expect him to do (laughs) it was very late at night and he's away from his wife and you know boys gotta fuck like that's pretty much what he's saying Mm. a couple of Christian Porter things first of all I hope I naively hope that you know, there was a lot of talk in this episode about him being touted as one day being a prime minister. And I hope this might be enough that that never even comes close to happening. But now I have a quick question yeah. because my 5G hat is on again. Yeah. Uh, people ousting Mal- Malcolm Turnbull as like, you know, like backstabbing him. Mm. Morrison coming into power. Was Porter one of the ones that backstabbed him? I don't know. I Hang on. I'll look it up. <laughs> that would be interesting. I, like, I was literally just prior to this reading an article in the Ospole Shit Posting group actually talking about there's this like innocuous, bizarrely written article and we'll put a link in the notes. It's basically like makes heaps of really valid points. About like, you know, essentially along the lines of what we've been saying is that just like, we know that the system is like this. We know this is what's happening. Mm. And then goes on to say that like the, but something along the lines of like the Four Corners expose was like damaging to women and damaging to feminism because it is essentially trying to say like people in government can't have relationships or have sex with each other. And I feel like so many people, like even the bonk band and like people saying that like, well, you just can't have relationships in government misses the systems that are underneath this behavior because it's not about, you know, having sex at work or, you know, it's about the power dynamics behind these relationships Mm. that Rochelle Miller, when their relationship ended, she was moved into a different department, demoted and Felt like uh, damaged goods, essentially. Oh, yeah. That line. I felt like damaged goods. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, she she was the one that had to leave. Not him. Mm. He's He's in the power position. And that's when there's a lot of talk in this about consent, consensual arrangements and uh, relationships. Whereas you can't say that it's like abuse or assault or whatever. Mm -mm. But this is a really grey area that we need to have a conversation around power dynamic. Yep. Like where, where are our rights and do they exist and are we protected within this legal system? Mm. Uh, and maybe this is a good time to, to throw to the interview. Just another content warning and reminder that this interview contains discussions of sexual assault and sexual harassment. If you would like to skip it, we have the timestamps available in the show notes. So earlier, Carly and I spoke with Dr. Bianca Philiborn who is a senior lecturer and a DECRA fellow in criminology at the University of Melbourne. She researches sexual violence and harassment, as well as gender and sexuality. Thank you, Bianca, for coming on. And uh, yeah, we'll just go to the interview. Um, as, as a research nerd, I would actually, if you're comfortable, I would love for you to like give a brief summary of like what you're researching now and what projects you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, the main project that I'm working on right now um, is a government-funded project that's looking at um, justice responses to street-based harassment. So I've been, um, yeah, interviewing people across Victoria and New South Wales about their experiences of street harassment and how it's impacted on them. Um, But more importantly, like, how do they understand the concept of of justice and what types of responses would they like to see put in place to help achieve a sense of justice in response to street harassment? 
because um, I think at the moment, particularly in Australia, we have very little um, policy or you know practice-based responses around street harassment. Um, at the same time, particularly internationally, we've seen a lot of movement around, um, you know, introducing um, criminal legislation and on-the-spot fines for street harassment, uh, which on the face of it seems quite positive, but we've actually never asked um, people who experience harassment, well, what would you like the response to be? Mm. And as we know, and as we're going to get into, the formal criminal justice system has a terrible track record when it comes to responding to sexual and gender-based violence. Yeah. So I think there are hu huge question marks around one, whether that type of response is going to be effective in relation to street harassment. Um, the other thing that we know, and as the international Black Lives Matter movement has, has shown and like really brought to the forefront this year, is that criminal justice responses disproportionately impact on uh, people of colour and other minority groups. So I think it's, you know, doesn't take a genius to work out that if we're introducing things like on the spot fines for street harassment, we're probably going to be disproportionately impacting, you know, men of colour, people experiencing homelessness, um, people with mental health um, challenges and, and so forth. So yeah, the, I guess the idea of the project is to try and um, develop some victim-centered uh, insights and perspectives into how we can best respond um, to street harassment. Um, so that's taking up most of my time, but I'm also doing some work around um, harassment for um, people using rideshare and taxi um, services and another project that's been looking at sexual violence at music festivals in Australia. So oh, yeah, lots of different yeah. things keeping me mm. busy. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I, that, the on the spot fine, just what, does there have to be a police officer witness it? Like I, exactly. I don't, that is just ludicrous, but yeah. Sure. Exactly. And, and that, that's a big part of the, the challenge, right? I mean, yeah. harassment is incredibly difficult to respond to anyway. Like as so many people have said to me, like, you know, someone's driven past in their car and they've yelled, you know, screamed something out at me. What am I going to do? Like go to the police and say a man with brown hair in a red car drove past. I don't really know what he looked like. I don't know what his license <laughs> plate number was yeah. you know like it's yeah literally unless there is a police officer standing there who happens to witness what happened it's very difficult to respond to in that kind of way mm. and again let's face it the type of person who's going to engage in harassment when police are around it probably faces some of those challenges that we you know just mm. just mentioned um it's very unlikely that it's you know going to be the middle-aged businessman doing something a bit creepy on public transport for example who's going to get caught yeah. in that kind of way yeah. yeah yeah absolutely the types of harassment that are often the most insidious are the ones that I feel like especially a police officer who was a man would be like they were just being friendly exactly so it yeah just exactly so much of it is normalized it's really context dependent mm. and it can be really subtle um, mm. and that's the stuff that's really really difficult to call out and probably stuff that would be impossible to actually legislate against right like mm. you, know, mm. you can't introduce a law against looking at someone or having a conversation with someone in public mm. right and those things can absolutely be harassment but you know, I think there would be huge civil rights implications, for example, in saying it's now illegal to stare at someone for more than 10 seconds or something, right? Like, mm. it's, it's just not behaviour that can be dealt with in, in that kind of way. But mm. also, like you touched on before, we saw in COVID with cops using their own discretion that, you know, it was people of colour and it was homeless people mm -hmm. and it was sex workers that were most impacted by those COVID laws. So that, yeah, the, the police who are actually are a massive part of the problem and especially that whole using their own discretion. And then we've got something like IBAC that is useless, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Using that as, as an example, what are some of the other barriers, both legally and in your own personal opinion, to enforcing these kind of laws? Yeah, so we know that there's huge barriers to enforcing laws against um, sexual offences and, and sexual harassment. Um, so firstly, it might be helpful if I say a little bit about the legislation that's in place mm. um, across Australia. So if we're talking about sexual harassment in the workplace, we, ac we actually do have a suite of legislation, both federally and um, across states and territories. So the main piece of legislation is the Sex Discrimination Act. So that's a, a piece of federal legislation that was introduced um, back in 1984 which is the year I was born so good year all round um, <laughs> uh, 
Um, so that was introduced to um, ensure that Australia was meeting its human rights obligations for um, discrimination relating to things like sex and, and, and racism. Um, so that includes uh, or that created uh, legislation against um, sexual harassment in the workplace as, as well as other forms of, of sex discrimination. Uh, but we also have state and territory legislation, so things like the Equal Opportunity Act uh, in Victoria also outlaws um, sexual harassment in, in the workplace um, and you know, different workplace um, safety uh, legislation and the Fair Work Act also cover uh, harassment to varying degrees. Um, so lots of different things <laughs> for workplace harassment. Um, and interestingly, so the Human Rights, Australian Human Rights Commission has just finished doing a big inquiry into workplace harassment. And one of their findings was that it's actually really um, confusing for people who've experienced harassment because there are so many different systems potentially governing it and different avenues mm. for, for making a, a complaint and resolving issues. Um, so even though it might seem like a good thing that there's lots of different um, pieces of legislation in practice, it also makes things a bit messy. Mm. Um, so in relation to sexual offences, that's uh, handled at the state and territory uh, level, sorry, so all states and territories have legislation in place um, that makes it an offence to, uh, generally speaking, to engage in um, sexual activity with someone without their consent. Um, so there's different levels of offences, you know, I won't go into the differences across every single um, state and territory, but, you know, in general, there's, you know, things like indecent um, assault, which might include sort of sexualized touching, um, sexual assault, uh, which again might involve things like, like groping and touching people on the outside of, of their, their bodies. And then sexual assault or rape can also include penetrative um, offences. So again, that just varies across the particular state or territory. Typically rape refers to penetrative, penetrative offences. So whether it's mm. vaginal, anal, oral um, or digital um, penetration. So how well do these laws actually um, protect survivors? Um, I think the short answer is not very well. Um, mm. Firstly, we know that the vast majority of people, whether it's for sexual harassment in the workplace or for um, sexual offences, don't report in the first place. So for sexual offences, around 85% of survivors never report um, to the criminal justice system. And I would say that that's probably an underestimate um, as well. Mm, yeah. um, you know, in terms of why that's happening, it, it's really complex. There's a, a lot of different factors that um, play into it. Um, firstly, whether or not people actually recognise what's happened to them as constituting either harassment or assault. You know, there's a lot of mis myths and misconceptions around what counts as sexual violence. And a lot of us tend to think that it has to be the most extreme, you know, physically violent thing for it to count. So for anything that doesn't kind of fit that stereotypical stranger jumping out of the bushes with a knife or whatever, um, yeah. we, we don't necessarily label it as, as counting. The criminal justice system is an incredibly re-traumatising um, process for the vast majority yeah. of victim survivors. Um, you know, we know that um, unfortunately people reporting to the police are still, um, can still be blamed for their experience or dismissed out of hand. Um, that's improved in some states. So in Victoria, for example, we do have specialist um, sexual offences units and, um, you know, that research has shown that that's improved the experiences of some survivors when they're reporting. Mm -hmm. um, but those specialist units are only available in, in some jurisdictions within Victoria. So there's no guarantee that you're going to report to someone with that, that um, expertise. Um, a lot of cases drop out at the prosecution stage um, because prosecutors decide that there's not sort of sufficient evidence to proceed with, with the case. We know that for the vast majority of sexual offences, it's often um, in a context where two people know each other, there's no other witnesses, um, they've often had some type of consensual sexual interaction before. Mm. Um, so it's one person's word against the other. It comes down to who's perceived as being more credible um, and it's incredibly, can be incredibly difficult to prosecute and get a successful conviction in, in those types of, of cases. Um, survivors are, you know, um, interrogated and questioned in very intimate detail about what's happened, both during mm. the investigation process, but then obviously, again, um, during the, the court trial. 
that can be incredibly re-traumatizing. Going to court is often described as being like the second rape, um, particularly mm. the process of, of cross-examination. Yeah. So whole range of reasons. Um, I'm, you know, there's more I could go into there, but I think that gives you a pretty good picture. Um, and I think when we're talking about things like harassment in the workplace, we do see, I think, similar kinds of issues. Vast majority of people don't report. Um, people who do report, you know, a large minority um, are ostracized or experience negative ramifications. Um, you know, it's often not seen as worth it. Sometimes things that are seen as being too trivial or too minor to be worth reporting. It's just not worth the, you know, energy of going through the process of reporting and whatever, um, you know, mediation processes or yeah. whatever might, might yeah. follow that. So, yeah, massive, massive um, barriers. So what? Why even have these laws? Like, <laughs> yeah. why why do they even exist? <laughs> a good Is it question. just a smoke screen? Like, <sighs> yeah, I, I think that the intentions behind the laws are, are probably. I, I want to I want to believe that they're good. And well <laughs> I, I have to believe that <laughs> to keep getting up in the morning. Um, and, and, in, and in some cases, you know, I think they do. You know, they can work successfully some of the time. It's just for the vast majority of cases, they absolutely don't. I think the other really big issue that we haven't touched on are the, the cultural issues. So a big mm. part of the reason that a lot of these laws aren't functioning as we might like is because of these cultural and, and social attitudes that continue to you know, minimise the seriousness of, of sexual harassment and, and sexual violence that continue to place blame on survivors for their own experience, that continue to minimise and downplay the actions of, of perpetrators so, you know, even if we have like on the face of it or on paper, um, some pretty good legislation in place, that's not to say it couldn't be improved, but, you know, mm. particularly in Victoria, for example, like we have some relatively progressive sexual offences legislation in place. We're going through another process of um, a law reform inquiry right now into our sexual offences legislation. So it might improve, you know, even further. Um, but even after, you know, decades of of reforms, we haven't seen any changes in terms of survivors' experiences, in terms of you know rates of reporting, um, or, or anything like that. Um, so that's perhaps saying that it's not just the legislation that's the problem, mm. right? It's the people mm. that are interpreting and enacting and you know responding to survivors. So we really need to be looking at dealing with those broader um, cultural and, and attitudinal issues um, because we can have the best legislation in the world, but if people aren't, you know, interpreting it in good faith or, you know, able to, you know, treat survivors in a supportive and respectful manner, um, you know, if we're not willing to hold perpetrators to account for their behaviour, mm. um, you know, that legislation isn't, just isn't going to be effective. If people can't access these systems, right, it, not, they're not going to be effective. So, Speaking of accessing, like I've tried to read the legislation, especially when looking into the, the Let Us Speak campaign and the gag laws, it's, it's incomprehensible. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think that's part of the problem, um, unless you're, you know, a legal expert or you have legal training. You know, I'm not a lawyer. Um, I definitely struggle reading through some of this legislation. Yeah. So I think for... You know, the average person in the community it's really difficult to know um what the law actually says um yeah you know how what processes are in place for reporting um i think it can be incredibly confusing um mm. to, to a lot of a lot of people and i don't think we do a good job of actually communicating to the general public you know what mm. our rights are um how you go about making a complaint and, and so forth. Mm. So speaking about culture, we had that uh, Four Corners episode come out that was portrayed to be a revelation. <laughs> Were you particularly surprised by it? No, surprisingly enough, I wasn't <laughs> surprised. <laughs> yeah. Men <laughs> in positions um, of power, abusing their positions of power, never. <laughs> I know, shocking. Never seen it before. Mm. Um, who would have thought? <laughs> Um, but no, I mean, in all seriousness, no, I was not surprised. It fits with absolutely everything that we already know about sexual harassment in the workplace and, and sexual and gender-based violence more broadly. We already know that sexual harassment is more prevalent in workplaces that are male-dominated and that have, you know, cultures that are, are kind of hyper-masculine, um, competitive, where you know, women and um LGBT people and, and other diverse communities aren't really 
seen as belonging or haven't traditionally, um, you know, had roles within within those systems. Um, we know that that creates a context where sexual harassment um, can can flourish. Um, I think the parliament and the political system absolutely, you know, fills all of those characteristics. It's still male dominated, you know, perhaps less so than, than it used to be, but, you know, traditionally, I mean, it was exclusively male traditionally, you know, we still see women um, and, you know, people of colour and LGBT communities are underrepresented. Um, we've seen examples of shocking sexism and misogyny. I mean, Julia Gillard would be a classic example. I don't know if I even need to say more about that, right? You know, this yeah. is not, not a system that is um, friendly towards women. Yeah. I think it's mm. a, a system where, you know, it's a very particular type of masculinity that's valorized within this system where, mm. um, you know, uh, it's very kind of jocular and, um, you know, if we look at, say, like, question time in Parliament, it's about, um, you know, being quite aggressive, competitive, um, mm. you know, if you can't handle the heat, you know, you can leave kind of mentality. Um, so, yeah, it, just everything about the system really uh, creates a context for um, sexual harassment to flourish. It's a very hierarchical um, mm. system where there are, you know, very notable um, power disparities, particularly between, say, like MPs and their members of, of staff. Um, I think, you know, quite aggressive and bullying um, behaviour seems to be tolerated in general mm. within the system uh it's an incredibly competitive environment to actually you know get a get a job within um so yeah. again i think that creates the expectation that you just put up with with bad behavior i you know i think as we saw in, in four corners there's also that culture of what happens particularly in canberra stays in canberra so there's this culture of, of secrecy as well and that we don't kind of job on other people when they're engaging in behavior that might be you know a bit unethical if not against the law yeah <laughs> the laws that they create exactly <laughs> yes yes <laughs> they just create of... them doesn't apply to them yeah oh fucking fuckers seeing it as though they are the people that are in control of like policy and and law do you believe that the culture within parliament actually affects the laws that get passed down? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, look, I don't have any hard evidence for this other than to say that it, you know, completely makes sense, right? And I, I think we have seen this in other elements of, of women's and, you know, marginalised communities' lives, that when it's, mm. you know, white, cisgender, middle and upper class men making the laws, they tend not to reflect the needs and experiences of, of other people. Mm. Um, so yeah, I do think that it, it impacts um, how we understand the issues and um, how, how they're responded to in policy and, and through legislation. And then, yeah, like I said, even where we do have legislation that is on the face of it good and, and potentially quite progressive, the behaviour of people in our parliament and in politics is reinforcing a culture that directly undermines the operation of those laws and they're perpetuating a, a culture that we know underpins and facilitates the occurrence of sexual harassment and, and sexual violence. So, you know, even if the laws themselves are okay, we still see this incredibly counterproductive um, culture in place. Mm. I'm so sad right now. Look, it's pretty depressing. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> I've been thinking since, like, when we were talking about the culture stuff a bit earlier, it's it's brought back Brie Lee's book, Eggshell Skull. Yeah. Um, ab oh, that book was amazing. And in particular like when we talk about the split between legislation and culture and it's like just stories of trials and over and over again what Brie outlines is that they're, the lawyers in these cases are really just playing on stereotypes and I, and these sexist ideologies that we have and also racist ideologies. Uh, yeah, and I just keep thinking like it's the same thing. If we have this culture in the government, then basically the legislation just feels like window dressing as a way to address these things that we have to show that we're caring about, but we're not actually putting the changes in place to make those legislation do anything. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think, 
yeah, we see that again and again in, in sexual offences legislation. In the last round of, of legal reforms, we saw changes to like definitions of sexual consent, um, but also what the defendant has to, to show or prove in, in order to be found not, not guilty. So, so consent is based on this idea of a free agreement. So if a victim survivor didn't freely agree um, to the sexual acts, then that shows that there was a sexual act without consent. But that's only one component of the offence. So even if you can show that the survivor wasn't consenting, it also hinges on what the defendant or the accused person knew about the survivor's consent. Mm -hmm. So if they can show they had an honest and reasonable belief in consent, they can be found not guilty. Uh, And how that belief in consent is actually demonstrated is where we find a lot of those, you know, myths and stereotypes coming into play that completely undermine the purpose of the reforms that we've seen that are supposed to be showing or adhering to this idea of, you know, consent as communicative and and active and, you know, everyone's freely agreeing and having a good time. So we'll see defence barristers using strategies like, you know, implying that the survivor was lying, you know, implying that um, she consented at the time and is, you know, um, just saying that it was... She just changed her mind and she regrets it now. Exactly, yeah. Mm. Or she's trying to get back at the defendant in in some way or, you know, she'd been flirting with him or she'd been drinking or, you know, you see defendants saying, oh, well, she moved or she made a sound, therefore I thought she was (laughs) consenting. Um, Mm. So defendants don't actually have to, like, there's no onus on them. It's The onus is on the prosecution to demonstrate, Mm. right, that... Um, that that person knew or had, didn't have a reasonable belief that the survivor wasn't um, consenting. Um, so we've seen in Tasmania, for example, they've actually introduced legislation um, that does create more of an onus on the defendant to actually show what what reasonable steps they took. If they're going to throw it out there that they had this reasonable belief in consent, that they have to be able to demonstrate tangible steps that they took mm-hmm. Um so that's something that I would really like to see changed um, in, in Victoria. Um, but before the, just um, interestingly, before the last round of um, reforms in Victoria were, um, were passed, um, some colleagues and I actually did some research that tried to look at what the likely impact of, of the reforms would be. And unsurprisingly, um, a lot of our participants, particularly people in the sexual assault um, sector, but also just mem- uh, members of the general community, said you know well what's reasonable like this is just going to be reinterpreted Mm. in a way that reinforces all of these myths and and stereotypes you know precisely because there's I mean one there's no consensus on what counts as a reasonable step I think some people have some pretty unreasonable ideas about what's actually Mm. reasonable Mm. right Um, it doesn't create an onus there's no kind of clear guidance on you know what sort of things might happen um yeah. an ethical and you know quote-unquote reasonable negotiation of, of sexual consent so mm. I think these outcomes were entirely um predictable um and there is a challenge right like the more that you specifically kind of name and label and constrain things in legislation it does become very difficult then to actually apply it to particular mm. cases or things can mm. be interpreted in, and applied in, in problem, problematic or unintended ways. So there, mm-hmm. is a, there, is a, there are challenges there, right? Like I don't just want to totally slam the, the legal system as if this is a really easy thing to, to respond mm. to. Like there are very real challenges, but there are things that we, we could be doing, I think, to mm. you know, improve the system that we have. Um, but I think the other issue, I mean, as we spoke about earlier, most survivors aren't accessing the system and the system is very problematic in terms of perpetuating, you know, racism and other um, systems of oppression. So I actually think, I mean, while I, I think it's important to make sure that the formal system is as safe and supportive as it can be for survivors who do want to go down that that path, we need to be looking at alternative ways of actually responding um, to sexual harassment and and sexual violence outside of of the mainstream um, system. That's really interesting, actually, because, I mean, I'm kind of just announcing something without permission, which might be bad, but I'm sure it's fine. (laughs) Um, I've just had a meeting with the International Slut Walk committee we're, we're planning on doing a, a big action next year 
around the world. One of the things that we were discussing was a workshop around how, how to respond to people who are victim survivors and when they disclose. And I think workshops like that on a community level will help address this, I suppose it's like a, a cultural issue that we have as well as a legal issue. And um, yeah, when we're talking about power structures and power dynamics, there's there's kind of a few different ones. Like obviously there's the legal issues, but also like who controls the law, but who controls the labour and who controls the cultural voice as well. And I think those are sort of the three main places where change needs to happen. And I think, I mean, personally, I think that a cultural shift needs to happen. Like the that um, article, Rough Justice, that was released by the ABC, I think earlier this year, talking about like the number of people that don't actually make it past talking to a cop. I don't know. I, I feel like the, we can't rely on the legal system in order to get justice. And by justice, I don't mean like you know, go to trial and he's found guilty. I mean, by justice, I mean like reform. No, yeah, <laughs> making sure that people who've perpetrated these behaviours actually understand why what they did was wrong and they're actually working towards you know, changing their behaviour and their attitudes. And there's no guarantee that that happens in the criminal justice system. Like you can be found guilty and go to jail and it doesn't mean that you accept that what you've done was wrong or that you ever no. change your behaviour or your or, attitudes, right? Or even understand, because mm. when you talk yeah. about something as complicated as consent, when you've been taught your entire life that you're entitled to women's bodies, trying mm. to understand that like women can feel uncomfortable when they're in that position like I just don't think men have that lens and I don't know if we can legislate that away no I don't think we can and you know the use of coercion and and force is actually really normalized in a lot of our sexual scripts around you know how (gasps) you negotiate sex (laughs) don't even talk to me about that romantic notion of like she says no no she really wants it and then yeah. he like mm. grabs her and kisses her, and it's like this romantic moment. And I'm like, get fucked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. I'm exactly. sorry. <laughs> um, but that, like, you know, like how if you're a, you know, if you're a guy and that's the message that you've got about this is how one mm. does sex and I'm entitled to, you know, if I put in nice points, I'm entitled to <laughs> a woman um, at the end of the day. The and- Ending machine. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just put your, your nice coins in and eventually <laughs> sex will happen, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like the, there is a, some of the really, like, insidious and persistent messages that people get about sex. So how is a, mm-hmm. like, a, a particularly young man, but not only, like, how are you supposed to understand that what you've done is wrong when you're doing what you've been shown is mm-hmm. how you negotiate sex, right? Like, yeah. so that's where that kind of cultural change and education is is so vital and that's not something that's going to be achieved through the law the law actually sets an incredibly low bar like for negotiating ethical sex particularly if you look at how the law is actually applied in practice even if you're like I said on legislation on on paper it looks okay Um, but when you look at you know cases that are like that actually go through the system um, I mean there's so very very few convictions and you know, like I know, the Luke Lazarus case with or Saxon Mullins case would be a, a classic example where, you know, it was very clear that she wasn't consenting. And in fact, that was mm-hmm. found in the first trial. But, you know, on, on appeal, it was basically like, oh, no, it might have been reasonable for him to think you were consenting, like to forced anal sex in a dark alleyway. Like, it, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if we if we look at what the law actually does in, in practice, um, that's not the bar that you want to be using for your measure of whether something is mm. ethical mm. and consensual. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I think what we're talking about is transformative justice. Yes, mm. absolutely. And, yeah, finding a way to talk to like not only women but young boys about what consent actually is. And I think if we do it from like a young age, like mm. make it a part of sex education essentially mm-hmm. totally well and it's also about you know changing our norms about sex right like the idea that um, I mean, i'm talking particularly about heteronormative 
sex, but I don't, I don't mean to yeah. exclude LGBT people who also disproportionately experience sexual violence. But Thank you. In, um, <laughs> in heteronormative encounters, um, you know, there's this idea that like sex is a competition. It's like a goal that you're, you know, trying to score. Is that like, why men always finish so quickly? Yeah. Got <laughs> 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 to get there first. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Like, it's not this idea. Mm. I don't. I don't want to be too normative or prescriptive about like how one should do sex. But we're not exactly having a, a culture where it's about like feeling good, making your partner or partners you know feel good mm. and or about like this mutually enjoyable and fun and like playful yeah. situation it's like about getting mm. what you want at yeah any cost women are viewed and I say this quite often sorry for repeating myself for anyone who actually listens to this podcast but women are viewed as like sexual objects and uteruses first mm. and then our bodily autonomy come like almost fifth or sixth. Yeah. Mm, like yeah. it's just that, I think that's something that really needs to change within our culture. Totally. Uh, I think it is important that we talk about LGBT communities um, mm. as well. And I think, you know, to a large extent, they're entirely ignored in our current yeah. like, sex education. And it's, especially yeah, when you're totally. talking about like uh, or bodily autonomy and reproductive rights and like people just go wild when you say like well men have uteruses too yeah yeah we're not even at a point unfortunately where we can have an adult conversation about these things and you know unfortunately (sighs) we seem to be witnessing the increase of turf turfism is that a word I don't know it is it is now um (laughs) that's making it a a very kind of polarizing um environment but you know one thing that I've heard like particularly from participants in my my research is you know, how do you know what a healthy or consensual or ethical relationship looks like when your relationships aren't portrayed in culture, they're not spoken mm-hmm. about in, you know, in our education? Um, so how do you know what's, what's healthy or respectful or, or ethical? Or how do you know when something isn't okay, when sexual violence is framed as something that cis heterosexual men do to cis heterosexual women? Mm-hmm. Like you're just entirely outside of the framework for like thinking about about these issues um mm. and then when we're talking about something like say reporting to the police there's added layers of, of difficulty where the police have been and often continue to be a huge source of oppression and violence um mm. against lgbtqia plus um communities and particularly at the moment against um transgender communities i hate cops so much <laughs> heteronormativity is such a poison isn't it it really like and it limits everyone's opportunities and experiences and like mm. potentials for being mm. in the world right mm. like it's actually bad for all of us like in the same way that patriarchy is bad for all of us yeah and, like, yeah obviously heteronormativity is going to be more harmful to you know gender and sexuality mm. diverse communities but it's not doing any of us like any benefits really like it's again helping to keep a very small um minority of people in power at the expense of literally everyone else Mm. yeah and when we like talk about reporting crimes and everything it's another one of those situations where the further you are from a heteronormative situation the more oppression you're going to face when you try and seek justice for anything like this exactly so yeah it's horrifying But she raises some valid points, doesn't she? Oh, yeah. It was so fascinating. It's also really um, validating as well Mm. to, like, I've been thinking this about the legal system for so long that it's literally doesn't exist to support us. And this is something that she mentioned prior to the interview, but we didn't actually get in the interview. But we were talking about, like, the culture of law and the history of law. And when the legal system was set up, women were not even considered citizens. The first draft or version of what is it, sort of rape and sexual assault, was was essentially talking about property law. Mm-hmm. We obviously had made, we have made progress within the legal system, but we've still got so much so much further to, to go. I, yeah, it, it seems it seems like a task that I, I mean, I'm not a professional in this, so I don't know how we have to do it, but how you build from these laws that, like Bianca said, originally started as property law, how do we then build that into laws about autonomy and about 
human beings, how I, we can try and develop, but like, like we said throughout the interview, it's a culture thing. How do we start with something that was so dehumanizing as to be treating women as property? How do we take those laws and ever develop them to a point where they're actually treating victims of sexual violence as human beings with their own autonomy and not just continue to perpetuate these old myths and notions that, as we said in the interview, inherently end up affecting the way that we treat in the justice system, treat these crimes, these, Mm. yeah. And I think it's, I don't know, and I think it's very telling that the people who are in in control of these laws, like even someone like Dyson Hayden, these men are creating the law, Mm. maintaining the law and enforcing the law to suit themselves. Mm. It's never, ever going to be for the benefit of women Mm. when they are the ones that are that are controlling. Mm. Well, yeah, like just to go back to Christian Porter for a second, when they were talking about no! what he was like <laughs> when he was in uni and then I, I had chills at the thought of that being the person who gets to have so much control over our justice system because someone who behaved like that when they're that young, we haven't seen enough growth and rehabilitation from him for me to ever believe that he won't still be treating women like this now, even if he just does it in a much more covert way because he's older and wiser and knows that he can't be doing it, obviously, but it's going to be underlying everything he does. Yeah, absolutely. And you can tell from the way that he engages with the community, he's very charming. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so true of so many abusive people. Mm-hmm. I also thought it was, um, there was, a, I don't I don't know if it's irony because I feel like we all use irony right now um (laughs) about (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's definitely not irony now that i've said that but there's something about the fact that christian porter had this disgusting youth like the things that they were showing on there he was he was abhorrent absolutely atrocious it's not just he made mistakes as a kid like he spoke about yeah like there was a consistent long-term pattern of, you know, horrible disrespect and misogyny towards women. Yeah. Meanwhile, almost every woman I know, my age, my age-ish, younger, older in this area, is deathly afraid of the fact that they could reach a point, a position of power one day and have a nude leaked. Yeah. But this guy can publish in fucking magazines or whatever the fuck it was from his university days and say the horrific shit that he did and still get to the position that he's in. But a woman who took, like, willing photos of herself, consensually gave them to someone and then they go and revenge porn her, she would end up getting shamed and she wouldn't be able to have any power because Mm. we're still in such a fucking patriarchy. But do you know what the really fucked up thing about this is is that if they if the government and Morrison if they wanted to get rid of Porter they would use this against him 100% and that's why I was sort of asking like was he one of the people who uh like sort of backstabbed Turnbull mm. like and, and don't get me wrong I am totally cool with Porter being told to like shut up and fuck off you've always got to question what the motives are especially mm. from someone like Turnbull who totally missed the fucking point on this yeah totally missed the point on this mm. What about the optics? Hmm. Like, well, mate, I don't care. <laughs> what I'm interested in at the moment is, is this young woman okay? Are the yeah. young women who work in government at the moment, are they okay? Mm. That's what I care about. There was also some really interesting, I don't know if cinematography is the word, editing in the episode. My personal favourite was when they were talking about Alan Tudge having the affair and uh, then they played his speech talking about how sacred marriage is when he was anti-marriage <laughs> equality or anti-same-sex yeah. marriage I should say yeah uh, I just thought that was like poetically beautiful the way that was cut um but again I feel like that's a situation where they so that was that was very overt we saw that happening But there were a couple of moments in the editing that made me feel a bit icky. And one of them was when Christina Keneally was talking about when she was at the ball, like you mentioned earlier. And she's talking about how these men, what these politicians, people in power were hitting on her. And they have this extended bit in the middle of her speaking about this that's just a picture of her in her dress on the stairs. I just sat there going, what are they doing by showing us that image? It felt really weird. Like a woman is telling us something that had 
a fairly significant impact on her. Like at the end of it, she was basically like, I'm just never going to go to an event like that without my husband ever again. And instead of focusing on her and her storytelling, this weird like red carpet moment, it just, I did not know what they were trying to do. What do you expect from men? Boys will be boys. All right. (laughs) Oh, even when they're like leaders of the country. Even then. Yeah. The the safest thing for a woman to say when a man approaches her is that I've got a partner Mm. and they view women as property. And if that woman belongs to someone else, then she's off limits. Yeah. I mean, even though Christina speaks about how she was, she's apparently famously married. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very famously married. (laughs) Okay, calm down. You're not the first one, mate. Yeah, she said that. And I thought to myself, oh, I should Google who her husband is because that was a weird <laughs> comment, but I didn't. That's a re- yeah, I didn't because I don't give a fuck. <laughs> weird thing. <laughs> Jesus Christ. My icky moment was when Kathleen Foley spoke, but before she was even really allowed to say anything, they like rolled out her credentials, mm. like as if justifying her giving her opinion, like she made her qualified to speak, which was pretty crap. But another thing is that she's actually... Since speaking out, she's been voted down from the Victorian Bar. Yeah. What did, what did we say that was called? I think it's the Victorian Bar Association. Okay, that'll, we'll, we'll call it that. <laughs> Initially, it looked like a direct consequence of that. But what it actually, like, if you did any digging into it, it looks as though, like, there was an election on anyway. It's an annual election. It's, it's quite common for people to be voted down, voted in. However, <laughs> it is very suspect at the same time that this came out. She's voted down because I'm almost certain that this wouldn't have been the first time that she would have spoken out about sexual misconduct mm. or sexual violence or abuse or, you know, abuse of power, that kind of thing. So it, do, it does raise some questions. But also, guess who just got voted into the Law Institute Victoria? Who? Fucking Nina Bellens, you fucking fuck. Let's, let's not pretend that people who are elected to these committees are actually good and decent people at all times. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I just wanted to quickly talk about the bonk ban as well. (laughs) Uh, No, please, Leah, this is no. I believe our Prime Minister has already told us this is just not a professional way to be talking about a very serious issue. (laughs) We one one day need to actually video record these conversations because my face right now, no. No. How telling of the level of respect that Scott Morrison has for women when he speaks over mansplains, essentially, or mad explains, as I like to say, <laughs> <laughs> like talks, talks over someone who was directly asked a question and he answers not only on her behalf, but for a gender that just yep. nothing to do with him. Yeah. And again, it's a marketing thing. Yep. Don't call it the bonk ban. That's the wrong word. Yep. That, I, that's not what the problem with the bonk ban is, mate. Yeah. That is not the problem. The problem with the bonk ban is that we've just gone no to everyone without actually addressing the underlying power dynamics that occur. Because guess what? People are still going to have sex. Has anyone heard of uh, like prohibition? How well did that go? <laughs> yep. Zero tolerance on drugs? The war on drugs? Mm. How well did that go? I mean, obviously no one in America does drugs anymore. Mm. Uh, That's sorted. Like zero tolerance, saying no, imposing laws doesn't change culture. No. We know this because women have been living with sexual violence for how long? Mm. You know, oh, I've almost depressed myself again. (laughs) (sighs) I think something that has really come out of this for me anyway is... A real need to centre the voices, not only of victim survivors, but to, to centre feminist voices mm-hmm. and to, to not forget about this sort of stuff. Like he, he, Morrison's gone out and announced that he's going to be looking into war crimes, which is fantastic. That needs to happen. I don't, you know, on the record, I don't love war crime. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I do not. <laughs> what I think that we need to remember is that the, this government, the Morrison government, does a lot of like, uh, look, there's a bird over there kind yeah. of strategies and then just hides this misconduct under the bed. Yeah. He thinks that like, you know, how all through COVID he's like, stop it. That kind of shit. He thinks that he can just yell at people mm. and they'll just do what he says. Mm. 
No. Yeah. We're, we need to make sure, even though, yes, war crimes, we need to look into war crimes. This is very important. We cannot forget about the sexual misconduct or the sexual violence and the abuse of power that's happening in parliament mm-hmm. and in government. Yeah? Yeah. I just want to make it clear. I don't love war crime. Are we good? <laughs> <laughs> I think we need to um, move towards, like I've been speaking to friends about this for like maybe the last year, we need a feminist political party. Mm. We need a group in at this political system that is only, only feminists mm-hmm. and women, gender diverse. We, we need to be prioritising these marginalised voices and really bringing them up to the top and to the front. Mm. And like Bianca said, by... By including and making the world a better place for sex workers and for trans people and for gender diverse people, we are making the world better for everyone. Yep. So it's kind of selfish. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I have nothing to add. That was... Oh, no. There's this one other thing. Oh, my God. So I was having a yell with someone on Twitter. Well, it wasn't really a yell. It was more like a disagreement. She was like, I don't think we should have a feminist party. We should have a workers party. And I'm just like, get fucked. <laughs> level of nuance with me on Twitter is that I'm like no like workers rights is one aspect Mm. of this community yeah one aspect Mm. not only are you centering our humanity based on our production value Mm. we're also like completely ignoring the fact that it's gender inequality that underpins yeah do you know what I mean yeah if we're looking through a feminist lens entirely a feminist lens then we are going to be catching the gaps in all of the systems so not only who controls the law but who controls the labor who controls the public discourse Mm -hmm. essentially and that's where i think we need to be focusing our energy in order to overturn and overcome these systems that are in place to oppress us Mm -hmm. does that make sense Mm -hmm. cool i've had so much sugar (laughs) anyway (laughs) yeah i feel like you're going up and i'm (laughs) i'm scratching (laughs) (laughs) right so we need 500 members no i'm joking um well no i'm not i'm not joking we do need 500 members but yeah so i guess stay tuned because maybe like political party (laughs) well not maybe why not yeah i know enough people we know enough people Mm. i don't know look if fucking donald trump can get elected Mm. like let's leave that as the benchmark oh god what a benchmark (laughs) just exactly feminist party now <laughs> Woo! <laughs> yeah okay yeah thank you for coming to another episode and listening to us now famous broadcasters <laughs> <laughs> and thank you again to bianca for coming and doing the interview oh, it was amazing yeah what a babe yeah and also thanks to pet a friend of mine who um who hooked us up linked us together it was very cool excellent I hope everyone has a lovely week of low pollen and low numbers. But high expectations when it comes to the accountability of men in powerful positions. Beautiful. Bye. Bye. I didn't sing this week. (laughs) Okay, let's start again.